we're not getting the right feedback we needed in order to build the best product possible. So the only way we can get the feedback is put the shoes on as the owner. So that's the only way we could do it. Hi, and welcome to the Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. A little bit about our platform, Startup Blog Post, is that we're a community where aspiring entrepreneurs and venture capital ecosystem stakeholders can share meaningful insights, engage with colleagues and peers, and stay informed. Hi, and welcome back to the Sliced Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Ahrens. Today's guest is Dave Salvant, co-founder and president at Squire. Squire is the world's leading and fastest-growing software technology platform for barbershops, making it easy for small business entrepreneurs to run and grow their business all in one place. Hey, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. I am so excited. I have a little research in front of me kind of about your journey, but I'm excited to hear more about it from you. Sure, sure. Awesome. So it looks like you're originally from Brooklyn, New York. Are you still in New York? I'm primarily in Texas, Houston, Texas. Oh, nice. Uh, But our office is headquarters in in New York City. Awesome. And then it looks like a bachelor degree in political science from the University of Albany. And then an MBA in corporate finance and investment banking. So walk me through, number one, why political science, and then why mm-hmm. the switch to corporate finance and investment banking? Yeah, so, and I'll get into this later. I actually started Squire in the middle of business school, so I didn't complete it. But why I decided to do political science is because I, I always wanted to be a, an attorney. Naturally, political science is like the pre-law to like being a lawyer. Once I got into it, you know, I, I figured it wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And I ended up trending towards a economics kind of concentration. And also after directly after school, you know, I graduated probably at the worst time in the last, you know, 30 years to graduate the economic crisis of uh, 2008. Mm-hmm. So directly after college, I actually took up a, a marketing role before I was able to transition into finance about, you know, 2010. So it was kind of like a weird time to be graduating senior because the world looked like it was falling apart. I just had to kind of like make ends meet. So I was kind of like grinding, applying for six months and then landed something finally and then was able to parlay that into a career in finance a year later. So that's the journey in the beginning of my professional career. That's really neat. I um, am not a numbers person. What is it that specifically drew you to finance? Anecdotally, I noticed that people with wealth and the people with money were in finance. I just naturally gravitate towards that as a place where you can make a lot of money, mm-hmm. a place where you can live in Manhattan, a place where you can be successful. That's what drew me to that profession. To be frank, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about anything else. I didn't know this tech world existed. Uh, of course, you use products, but you just didn't have an idea coming from where I came from. You know, the abilities of you know entrepreneurship and to create some equity and wealth in the community. So, you know, it was just that the thing that I thought that uh, I could have a, a great career and, and provide for my family. 
Yeah. No, that's great. So I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but I'm going to make you tell it in a million and one time. Walk me through grad school you didn't finish. And this is when you had the idea for Squire. Can you walk us through how did Squire become what it is? So uh, we originally had the idea the winter before before I went to, to business school. So winter, you know, 2014. In fact, we were incorporated in 2014 once we had the idea. But, you know, it wasn't really picking off. We didn't have a third co-founder. We didn't have an engineer who was building the product. So my thought was, like, how can I buy some time to work on an idea where I don't have to be responsible for that many bills? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a way to buy time. The next year, things were starting to pick up. You know, we had some interest. That's when I decided to go full time. It was a now or never type of, of a moment. But the idea, or the genesis, or the impetus of the idea was formed by Song and myself, who was my co-founder, because it was just a pain in the butt to get a haircut. Every couple of weeks, you have to, you know, call a texture barber. You had to sit in the barber shop uh, for hours on end, and you have to bring cash all things that we saw through technology, whether it be ride sharing, which was taking off, whether it be booking an appointment, whether it be all these nuances of how you operate through life. Now in the barbershop was one of those industries that hadn't really changed since you know I was a kid. So we decided to solve for our own personal benefit, but we realized that more importantly, I think that uh, we realized how antiquated and art, antiquated and outdated was the software that these folks were using. Uh, normally they would piece several different pieces of software together to kind of just operate. So we decided to create something that made it easy for everyone to just work and operate. That's so neat. So it kind of just came from your own experience then. You mentioned the industry as being like antiquated and things like that, but I'm curious. So you have this idea for a product. You, th- you think to yourself, okay, let's go make this. When you're dealing with such, I use this loosely, like archaic industry, right? Just something that's been a lot around for forever. Was it hard to get them on board? Like, hey, here we have the super juiced up software for you. You should use it. Like, was it difficult to get people interested? I think it's very difficult to get folks interested initially. Mm-hmm. But I'm from the old school, thought that uh, persistence beats resistance. So they may tell you, you know, the first time, they may tell you another second time. When you show up the seventh time, they're going to take a listen to you. Oftentimes, these are other owners, so they have a level of respect for what you go through as a as an early business. So there's a level of admiration between you as the purveyor of services and them as the customer, because they all went through it themselves. I think the admiration becomes beneficial when they see that you're persistent. So I think that's interesting. And then you mentioned earlier you weren't super familiar with the tech industry, right? Because you were kind of on the financial side of things with your education. So, I mean, was it daunting to just kind of jump both feet into the tech industry? Did you feel like there was a big learning curve for you there? Man, there was a big learning curve. And you know, early on, we were just you know reading a lot, trying to figure it out. We are fortunate that New York City is kind of like the second tech hub. Mm-hmm. I believe, and early on, we were part of the WeWorks Labs program, which kind of like was an incubator. And then we learned a lot really quickly. I think we were fortunate to have some right guys around us, guys and gals around us that kind of 
showed us the way. And we were, you know, able to capitalize on that. So you had some mentors then? Yeah, mentors, okay. folks that have done it before. We were able to get into Y Combinator early on. That was a blessing. We learned that, you know, it takes a village. It takes a village and it takes folks that have done it before, who've seen this problem before, who can lend their advice and also their expertise to help you. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that it takes a village, which is feedback that we hear a lot. Could you talk a bit about how you met your co-founders and then the importance of those relationships as you guys have scaled the business? You know, I know Song, which is you know, my co-founder, one of my best friends for, at this point, it's 2021, you know, 10, 12 years now. Mm-hmm. We used to hang out socially a lot in the city as young Black professionals. The relationship was always fun, hanging out. I really believe that you need to start a business with someone who you're close to because when you guys argue and just and not argue but have disagreements, mm-hmm. uh, the tying thread is in the fact that you guys respect each other and are friends. So I think that was always the core of our relationship is a friendship. I think, you know, that 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 also, you know, stands the test of time. We're very fortunate to have that base where everything is rooted from. Now, how do we meet? How do, I mean, I guess, you know, New York City streets, uh, I would have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, so that answers that. Yeah, that does answer that. And then kind of jumping back to the product a little bit so I can understand. So what makes, or let me rephrase, why would this not be applicable to like a salon? I mean, the fact is that 90% of the, 95% of the software is the same. It can be applicable. You can make it work. But it's that 5%, that nuance that really sets the difference. It really makes our product exponentially better for our customers than other products. A lot of that was derived from the fact that we only operated a barbershop when we first started this thing out. We actually learned how to run a barbershop. We built the software based on our individual learnings. So there's some nuances that are very specific to barbershops that makes our product exponentially better than anything else out there. Oh, wow. So did you own and operate the barbershop prior to the idea for Squire or was it kind of partially born out of that idea? No, it was post-idea. Post-idea. So you said, okay, we have the idea. Let's go do this ourselves so we can kind of flush everything out? Yes, absolutely. It was like, hey, we're not getting the right feedback we needed in order to build the best product possible. So the only way we can get the feedback is put the shoes on as the owner. Yeah, so that's the only way we could do it. That's super cool. I mean, I kind of love that approach. Just do it yourself, you know. <laughs> you want more information? Go find it. Have a barbershop. Yeah. <laughs> that's really cool. I'm curious when you look back at your education and experience up to this point, did you ever see yourself as an entrepreneur? I mean, I feel like naturally I was always one of the guys that was very resourceful. I threw events in college. I did all that stuff. I really thought I was going to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know at what scale. I think the difference between a small business owner and a, you know, running a, a big tech company is just scale because every day you come across problems and every day you have to be resourceful. Every day you have to think outside the box and think about creative ways how to solve those issues. You know, I always knew I wanted to be some entrepreneur, but I didn't know at what scale it would be. Right. And you guys have really scaled. I have an article you guys were written about in Fortune. 
you fetched $750 million valuation. That's huge. Yeah, I mean. I mean, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, I mean. Did you ever think that? I mean, running an almost billion-dollar company is kind of, sometimes you got to pinch yourself because you don't realize how much it means until, because you're always in it. And other people have to really tell you that it's incredible for you to believe it because that's not what you're focusing on. Mm-hmm. My focus is providing the best products and services to our customers, having our customers be evangelists and be relentless about the customer and customer experience. I think once that's your focus, everything else just bubbles up to that. You just create good things, good products, and create a good company. And the second thing is providing a place for people to work where they can do their best work or their life's work or try to like be a part of something bigger themselves. And that's kind of how I look at our employees and kind of how I look at the workplace that I want to create. It's just I want people to just go have fun and do the work and do meaningful work and also be super passionate about the work they do. Hi, everyone. It's Sam. I'm just stopping by to tell you about our show, Portfolio Pitch. We sit down and talk to investors and get to know the people behind the investments. Go give it a listen on your favorite podcasting platform and let us know what you think by giving it a review. Coming up, Dave and Emily discuss Squire's impressive valuation, the prospect of unicorn status, and what the future holds for Squire. And it looks like you service to over 2,800 barbershops, but not only in the U.S., but also Canada and the U.K. So could you walk me through the thought process when you guys decided to expand kind of globally or internationally? I mean, yeah, I guess it kind of happened organically. We didn't say, hey, let's go to the U.K. tomorrow. Or let's mm-hmm. go to Canada, U.K. tomorrow. That's where the customers are. We're lucky to live in a digital world where we can actually do a lot of the onboarding a lot of the demo demonstrations a lot of the learning of the product virtually so we don't physically have to be there we were fortunate to you know our system is was malleable enough to really adapt without that much of a heavy lift to those different countries mainly because they're english speaking you don't have to change any languages or Mm -hmm. anything like that uh just some currency things but in terms of like the core system still in english still the same thing we just have we just opened up the ability for us to transact in those different regions. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And then I am curious: is there a particular risk that you recall taking, either when you were just getting started or maybe recent, and kind of how that panned out? I mean, the the buying a barbershop was the most considerable risk. <laughs> you don't um, say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had at that time we had sixty k in the bank buying the barbershop. Uh, was uh, 20 of that 60K. So we actually were down to 40K after we purchased the barbershop. And you still, you do you still own the barbershop? We actually uh, got rid of it after like a year. Mm-hmm. But I like to say that we kept people employed for a year. When we took out the barbershop, it was in the red, we brought it to the black. And we kept people employed for a year that wouldn't necessarily have a job. So uh, I'm very proud of, you know, the work we did. Yeah, that's awesome. And then kind of speaking about employment, I have a note here that you 
waived subscription fees for your users during the pandemic. Can you yeah. talk me through that decision and then ultimately kind of the impact that COVID had on your business? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another no-brainer. I think small businesses are the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. They are the ones with the inability to weather the storm. The corporation with billions of dollars on your balance sheet, yeah, you can go through the storm and and stuff like that. But if you're a one mom pop, you know, operation, any relief will be directly fell to the bottom line of your pocket. And this term like community, community commerce, barbershops in particular, are kind of like rocks or like stakes in communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where people gather, it's where people talk, it's where people go to relieve stress. Anything we can do to support that and keep the doors open, we would do. So one of the things is, I think a week before things started really to hit the fan, we waived subscription fees for the rest of 2020 before any of our competitors or any big companies, we made that proactive move. And then we actually continued that until mid part of 2021. So we were waiving fees for over 12 months. We, we like to say, we really talk to talk, but walk to walk. And I think that's super important. Your customers really feel that and they really set the authenticity when you make these bold decisions. Mm-hmm. And then we built several features, you know, that made it easy for folks to do business. We built a waiver form where folks are certified, they don't have COVID or don't have a temperature above 100.4 degrees, and they haven't traveled to a region that affected COVID. We built um, an online donation system so customers could donate not at the barbershop level, but to the individual barber cutting their hair. So they can actually buy gift cards and that will support their person during the COVID. Thirdly, we created a kind of like a virtual waiting room where folks don't have to queue up in, in a barbershop, allowing them to achieve social distancing and follow the necessary guidelines by the CDC. We responded very quickly, very aggressively, and very decisive with the actions we needed to take in order to shore up our industry and shore up our customers. Customers, and everybody saw that, and everybody saw that, and they wanted to support. Yeah, that's so great, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up, too, because at the time, businesses had a bunch of different options, right? It was clear months later after some of those decisions had been made, like which companies really put their customers first and and were proactive in doing things like this. So I think it's really neat that you guys were able to do that, especially kind of ahead of the curve, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I am curious, kind of circling back to your financial background, what has your experience fundraising been like? Looks like you're in Series D now with Tiger Global. Is that right? So Tiger Global, great partner over there, John Curtis, have been investors since our Series B. Okay. It just happened that they were able to lead, lead our Series D back in July. So that was great partners, great folks to work with over there. So, you know, happy to have them be a bigger part of going forward. Yeah. Do you have any, do you remember when you were getting started? I mean, any memorable wins or rejections and kind of... I mean, mean, it was hard. The Series A was terrible in terms of, you know, the process. I think we met with maybe 30, 40 investors and only got like one term sheet. It wasn't the the easiest process, but we were able to get it done 
by the grace of God. <laughs> and, you know, we we're able to take that momentum and keep running with it. Absolutely. And then I mentioned the Fortune article, but I have another one that I find really interesting as well. It was in People of Color in Tech. And you guys were listed as part of an article that said, is the first Black-owned tech unicorn finally within reach? You guys are top of that list. What would it mean for you to reach unicorn status? I mean, I think I think it would be a, a great thing for the community. I think it would be a, a lighthouse for entrepreneurs mm-hmm. coming after us. I think it would allow more capital to go into diverse founders of diverse backgrounds. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to expand the tribe, to mm-hmm. expand the village, and allow folks easier pathways to become successful. I think it's supposed to get easier. It's not supposed to go harder. It's supposed to be easier to get funding, which we're seeing that now because there's a lot of capital in the system, but and a lot of funds, diversity funds popping off. But and I think traditional capital and traditional angel investors are now paying attention to folks that don't have the Stanford MBA or the dropout from Harvard you know, Mm -hmm. different kind of folks, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. I think you touched on this earlier, but if not, is there a piece of advice you would share with somebody who's just getting started in their journey? I mean, there's a couple of ones, but but one that always always comes to mind, I don't know who says it, but it's so relevant. And it goes like this, it's most dark before the dawn. And that is something that, I kind of remember and latch on to because there was times that were so unbearable. It was so like, this is the worst thing that happened and there's no light and it's just dark by yourself or with my case, I was with a song. And it's just those points that you want to quit where you almost give up when you just say, nah, I, got, I just got to go, go harder. And then it comes bright again, you know? And then you think about like, what if we would have gave up? And those kind of wins and those kind of happenings really, really starts to change your psyche and the way you think about things. You just know, like, you've been, like, even the, even the problems that we face or the hurdles that we face now pale into comparison to what we faced early on. I would just say, you know, it's most darkest before the dawn. Persevere and just fight through it. Take care of yourself. Have yourself some time that you don't touch because I think not only is working really hard important but also finding time to take care of yourself personally a lot of people don't do that Mm -hmm. um, and they end up getting burnt out so I think it's a balance the balance may not be 50 50 but at some time we just got to take some time out and spend some time with your family and spend some time for yourself some self-care 100%. I think there's a phrase, I'm going to butcher it, but the gist is like necessity breeds innovation or something like that. I feel like I can liken that to what you were saying, how tough it was in the beginning. But sometimes when you feel like you're up against a wall, like that's when the breakthrough can really come. Right. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And then I am curious, what do you see as the future of Squire in the next like five to 10 years? What's coming down the pike? We just stay focused on building products for our customers. Once people get too distracted, they often, you know, lose focus. So I think what I want to do is I just want to stay focused on putting our customers first, 
providing solutions, providing great place, building culture in our organization, whatever happens, happens. Um, but I think if that's your North Star, if your customer's happiness is your North Star, I think everything that radiates from that is going to be good for business because you're operating from that perspective. And then kind of a final question for you, but what motivates you personally every day? That's a good question. I haven't thought about that. I'm motivated because, you know, I want to create something that lasts 100 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to create something that lasts 150 years. A lot of people can't say they've done that, but there's always been something, something to like the men who built America and stuff like that. And I feel like we're ushering in a new wave of revolution tech revolution and i think it's going to be the the men and women who kept america good and growing so i think that's kind of what i want to be a part of um is that second wave of tech revolution right awesome well that's so cool thanks dave thank you for sharing your story with us i want to give you an opportunity is there anything else you'd like to share about your journey or about squire with our listeners no, I'm just saying thank you for the opportunity. You know, I think getting people out, sharing stories like this and other founder stories are very important because you might, one of your listeners might be listening from home, pondering about taking the jump and taking the risk, but this might help them get over that hump. So it's super important that people start, keep on doing these things. Thanks. We think so too. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced Podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.